the big 2-0. Hello, welcome to Herpetological Highlights, episode 20, with me, Tom Major, and my co-host, Ben Marshall. For episode 20, we are going to be discussing vipers from Central and a little bit of South America. Um, yeah. Yeah, the original idea was to do an episode on um, the genus Lachesis, which is Bushmasters, um, which was an idea suggested by Bert Jonkier. But unfortunately, Bert, we really couldn't find enough about Bushmasters to do the whole episode. So what we've done is we've done a Bushmaster paper followed by a non-Bushmaster paper and then another non-Bushmaster paper. But still, like, relevant to Bushmasters in some way. There's still some connection back to Bushmasters. Is there? Cool. <laughs> yeah, I can force the issue, don't yeah, worry. okay, you've connected the dots in a way I definitely haven't, so that's good. Um, yeah, I've got the, tr- the cork board up, I've got little bits of red string connecting pictures of Bushmasters <laughs> to other various Vipers. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Have you got all your notes tattooed on your leg, lest you forget? No. No, I no. That's that'd be too far. <laughs> that would. What if I then needed to, to do another episode? Yeah, I would run out. I wouldn't have any space. Yeah, true enough. You need those temporary tattoos that you can stick on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be, that'd be fine. So, <clears throat> yeah. So, um, as we said, Bushmasters. So the first paper is uh, Gonzalez, Maya, Castaneda, Gonzalez, Pachecho, and Caballos, twenty fourteen. Distribution, range extension, and conservation of the endemic black-headed bushmaster Lachesis melanocephala in Costa Rica and Panama, published in Herpetological Conservation and Biology. Mm. Yeah. So basically the point of this paper is to give... Well, this uh, black-headed bushmaster had had no real formal assessment done by the IUCN, so we've got a big gap in, gap in the knowledge... And this paper's effectively targeted those guys and to try and work out what their distribution's like and what their conservation status is for IUCN assessment. Do they now have an IUCN assessment? Because I couldn't find it. I didn't actually check. Because I googled it, I tried to find it, and the only one I could find, the only Lachesis species that has had a red list assessment done is a subspecies of Lachesis muta rhombiata. Uh, well, there you go then. Still more information is known. Yeah, this is I, the first step then. And I got really aggravated as well. I got a bit frustrated because I tried to search using the IUCN search function. I typed in Lachesis and um, n- nothing came up that was Lachesis. It was all like Bothrops this, Bothrops that. And there was another animal with the sub where the species epithet was Lachesis. And I was like, well, that doesn't help. I wonder what that animal was. I didn't actually look, but... Uh. <laughs> it's probably some sort of manatee or something. Yeah, that would have been a funny aside, though. Like, maybe I should actually just find out. I'm curious now. Um, oh, okay. So this... Xenoides lachesis is a Madagascan arthropod insect from the f- nice. from the family Labulidae. It doesn't have a common name. <laughs> no. No, of course it doesn't. Oh, it's a skimmer. So it's... Oh, it's the largest dragonfly family in the world. So, you know, it doesn't really narrow it down. But... <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Excellent. Yeah. Anyway, back to Bushmasters. Bushmasters are pretty cool. And um, I'm really glad that Bert suggested we do this episode because uh, I didn't know much about them. They're the longest vipers in the world. They're absolutely massive. Um, mm, second largest venomous snake, right? Yeah. So is it kind of a case, is it like the reticulated python in the anaconda? This is my impression where 
the diamond is it i never remember it's eastern diamondbacks the biggest right not bitter scabonica oh is that those guys are fat (sighs) yeah maybe they are bigger i'm not sure but one of them is the heaviest probably probably gaboon vipers actually because they're monstrous right they are so fat they're fatter than they are long yeah they are they're sort of um they're sort of oval shaped <laughs> like a like a loaf of bread. Oh, we've had this discussion before. No, like no. a bloomer. Yeah, no, I don't think they're Eastern Diamondbacks are the heaviest snake. I'm sure of it. Cretalis adamantius. Because we did an episode on them and we discussed this and we came to the conclusion they were the heaviest. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm not going to question that, but I'm just having bits Gabonica sitting there in the background, looking on, waiting to get fatter one day. <laughs> they are absolutely glorious snakes. They're definitely, in my opinion, cooler looking, but. Yeah, so it's kind of a case, you know, like the reticulated pythons, the longest, the anaconda's the heaviest. They kind of duke it out for biggest snake because big is kind of an ambiguous word. Yeah. Same thing with bushmasters and the eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, where bushmasters are longer, but the diamondbacks are heavier. But I mean, bushmasters, the largest one uh, is the black-headed bushmaster, Melanocephalus, that we're talking about. It reaches three point six meters long. Yeah. That's a big snake. That's 10 feet of venomous viper, which is madness. Yep. Um, incredibly impressive animal. Like the jet black head on the top, like creamy yellow underneath. And then these like dark stripes and bars down the body. It's just a crazy looking snake. And actually, uh, not this species. I'm not sure. I'm, I think it's a Lachesis muta. It's definitely not this species because it doesn't have the black head. But yeah, I put a YouTube video in the comments, which is like really overblown and stupidly dramatic. Um, it's called something along the lines of like the world's deadliest, most fearsome baby eating snake <laughs> in its habitat. And it's like all this really dramatic music like dun, dun, dun. And the snake's just like crawling around on a log. It's clearly like been disturbed because it shouldn't really be awake in the day. But <laughs> it's a really fun video and it just shows you it's just this, this slightly disturbed snake yeah. trying to leave just like leave me alone guys and they're just it's coming right for me <laughs> yeah literally thankfully there's no narration which would have been probably the nail in the coffin and stopped me posting it but yeah it's quite funny but it just gives you an idea of like the proportions of this snake because it's not what you associate a viper with i mean at least for me you've got arboreal sort of like pit viper style body shape and then you've got like the stocky ground dwelling chubby terrestrial vipers exactly yeah whereas this is kind of neither of those it's just this enormous long beast like proportionally it's kind of like a a boa constrictor in terms of its sort of length and width but um yeah check out the video anyway Mm. yeah and uh melanocephalus the black-headed bushmaster's endemic to southern costa rica which is obviously where we are for this paper um yeah, they're really venomous as well, Bushmasters. So not only do they look cool, but also they're... Oh, like... we've got a little... Save the venom till the end. That's our segue into paper two. Okay, okay, cool. All right, yeah. But just know venom's coming and it's going to be really cool. It's going to be, it's going to be nicely morbid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, this paper they were trying to, as you said, work out the distribution of this snake, work out um, sort of broadly its conservation status. We also should mention another cool thing with Bushmasters is, unlike other vipers, egg laying. Ah, oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Of a parity. Yeah. Which we did bring up in a previous episode, but now we're talking about Bushmasters, I couldn't not bring it up again. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's super weird. They're the only, um, they're the only American pit vipers. They're the only American vipers that lay eggs, right? There's loads of Asian ones, but these are the only genus that lay eggs in 
the Americas. Ooh, I don't know. Yeah. I just know they're not in very like common company. Yeah, no, they are. They, I think they're the only one. Because in, in Asia, you've got loads. You've got like um, Malayan pit vipers lay eggs. Malayans, yeah. There's that whole genus Ovophis, which lay eggs. Oh, and I guess their genus names mean the one that lays eggs or something. I, I think so. Ovo. Egg snake. <laughs> egg, egg snake. Egg snake. I think that's right. <laughs> Equally, that could be a snake that eats eggs. Yes, it could be, but yeah. Oh yeah, the egg snake. <laughs> Maybe they eat eggs and then they lay eggs as well. Incredible. <laughs> They're just basically <laughs> egg recyclers. This is what I think. This, this, this reminds you of my coral reef thing, where... All corals really do is just release loads of sperm and eggs. That's all corals are up to most times. And what do most corals eat? Sperm and eggs. So it's just this massive, like, recycling sperm and egg factory. That's what a coral reef is, in my opinion. Yeah, just like the egg snake. Yeah, just like the egg snake. Same principle, different uh, biome. Yes, basically, yeah. This fictional thing that we're calling the egg snake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, apparently I might be wrong about this. Oviparous. Okay, some are oviparous, some are viviparous. That just confuses everything. I don't know how many species there are in this genus. What about the oviviviparous ones? Oh, God, that's this whole other thing, isn't it? I don't know. (laughs) Nobody understands it. It's basically made up, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There are people that understand it. Okay, so there's six species of (laughs) ovophis, and some lay eggs and some don't. So, yeah. All right. I wasn't totally wrong, but I wasn't totally right. It's one of those ones, isn't it? Make generalizations about nature and nature's going to make you look a fool. Try to not make generalizations about nature and nature will make you look like a fool. It's just a matter of time. But I'm just a simple man. I like putting things in categories. (laughs) Let me categorize you, nature. Yeah. Stop being so awkward. It actually seems to me that there's a lot of species. So of the six species of Ovophis, it seems like... Some of them, they don't. No one knows whether they lay eggs or have babies. Ah, oh. so really, our statement: that most vipers are life-bearing. Yes. Apart from like bushmasters and stuff. Eh. There's some real grey in between. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. And I found out recently that I didn't know that um, water American water snakes of genus Nerodia they give birth to live young too. Hmm. I think I always think of those guys as like northern anacondas. Do you? That's an interesting way of looking at it, given the fact that they're well, it's because they've got goofy eyes on the top of their head. <laughs> they're only separated by ninety-one million years of evolution. <laughs> <laughs> is it actually ninety-one? Are you just making that up? No, to sound foolish? no, it's actually ninety-one. I've been doing that time tree stuff. I think I remember that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's ninety-one. Nice. Yeah. Well, they're like evolution buddies. Their evolution. Yeah, well, it's conversion evolution, right? So. Yeah. Well, unless the ancestral snake also looked like them. Mm-hmm. I just ran a search on Time Tree to, to make sure I wasn't making it up. It is 91. <laughs> nice. Good knowledge. <laughs> is it good knowledge or is that the most useless knowledge I've attained so far? <laughs> well, it wasn't useless about 30 seconds ago, yeah, it was it? Yeah, it came in pretty handy. Uh, now he's looking silly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet. So, uh, yeah, tell us about this paper, Ben. Go on. What do they do? So, basically, the biggest point of this paper is to give a decent... So, they've got all these records from 
various databases like uh, that GBIF one that we always talk about in different episodes, which I forget. Global Biodiversity Information Facility or something, I forget. Yeah, GBIF. GBIF. Yeah, you know GBIF. <laughs> Everybody knows GBIF by now. Um, so I've collected all these these records of this snake in various places, and the idea is to get an idea of its current distribution based on those, well, current, its supposed distribution, and the potential distribution by using a sort of climate modelling approach. Yeah, so they work out what it likes, and then they'd see where it might like. Yeah, exactly, and and between those two you can get a decent sort of estimate of sort of how vulnerable would it how vulnerable it could be but obviously species with larger distributions and a more flex, flexible sort of climate niche and more space to move around are going to be less vulnerable than ones that are say restricted to a particular climate you know climatic zone or type of habitat or something along those lines bosh so first thing they do was supposedly to make an mcp which is a minimum convex polygon of all the uh, records. But I don't think they actually made an MCP. I think they put the wrong thing down. I think they made an alpha hull, which is slightly different. An alpha so MCPs hull. MCPs are more generous than alpha hulls. Alpha hulls can have like concave bits in them. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and I don't think that's an MCP. I'm pretty sure it's an alpha hull by the looks of it, because I think that a couple of the points they shouldn't have angles like that if it was an MCP, I don't think. Yeah, okay. No, I mean, uh, where's the figure you're looking at? Figure 2. It is on page 372. Figure DOS. I see it. Yeah, part A. Oh, yeah, okay, right, 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 right. See, to me, that doesn't look like an MCP. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. Number 10 cuts in, that's weird. Yeah. But regardless, they made this supposed MCP, but I think actually Alpha Hull of the known distribution or potential distribution. Well, maybe they just did that because the, the, the otherwise it would have gone through the ocean. Well, that's fine. Yeah. But then that's not an MCP. Right, 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 right. Okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> like, you can just say we connected the things around it, but I don't think that... Because I think MCP is something that doesn't have... That's the convex bit of it. Hmm. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's not a cri- it's not a criticism of the methods. The methods are sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just Mis- it was weird that it was called an MCP. Yeah, because there is just something called an alpha hull, which I'm pretty sure is just that. Um, so they got the potential distribution there, which gave them an area of yes, the area of occurrence is what they called it, of three thousand four hundred thirty two kilometers squared. Mm-hmm. So this is. Uh, Basically, a coastal area in southern Costa Rica, largely made of sort of mixed stands of forest and scrubland. Um, and then you've got all sort of agricultural areas and whatnot in there. But what's also interesting is that 13% of that is actually currently protected. 13? Hmm. 13%. So there is a little bit of hope. <laughs> in the sense that there are protected areas in, in the current distribution. So the next step was to work out how far this snake could pen- potentially live, you know, how flexible it is in terms of climate. So take the same 
occurrence records again, take the climate variables at those points, and then they're using, which I'm sure we've discussed before, Maxent to model sort of the areas surrounding which share those same climate variables. Yeah. Yeah? Now, this is something that I've just been doing some reading about by pure coincidence, because I just read another paper by Quillfeld et al., which is looking at um, basically comparing how the resolution of your record data can affect or can yeah can affect your distribution maps and how the actual algorithm you used for that modeling can also change the final map you get and the final distribution you suggest this species can have and they did a case study with brown black browed albatrosses they had different albatrosses with different uh, devices on multiple devices and each one gave a different resolution of data so each one being more or less accurate. Some were accurate within a kilometre, some to hundreds of kilometres. And then they could have the same animal with different methods, run with the same methods and see the differences in maps they got. How, if that made sense. Yeah, it did make sense. So how different... Yeah? So are you talking about, like, these albatrosses had, what, like, radio tags some, and GPS some tags? Some had GPS, some had the, like, satellite-recorded ones. So, like, the GPS tags, you had to recapture the animal to get the data off, but they were more accurate. Sure. And the satellite ones weren't as accurate. and Because basically they were looking at some pelagic seabirds you can only put on smaller tracking devices on, which are less accurate. So they wanted to know whether the distribution models for those species were being adversely affected by the tracking methods. And were they? Well, basically, they showed that the algorithm you pick has a greater impact than the tracking method you're using. So, these, uh, when you calculate species distribution, you've got a whole bunch of different methods for calculating that distribution, basically different... Well, yeah, different algorithms, like I'm saying. Maxent is one of them. But you also have a whole bunch of others. And they're saying that there's a bigger difference in the maps that are generated by picking a different algorithm than there is by the actual sort of spatial resolution of the data. Wow, that's pretty reassuring for... Um, for, pe- for pelagic seabird studies, yeah. Well, yeah, but also for studies of any animal distribution, no? Because, for example, with snakes, you can't really get extreme high resolution data because they're too small to put gps transmitters on so it's good to know well, that you can somewhat, somewhat compensate for that by picking the right algorithm yeah hopefully but the trick is that their sort of final suggestion is you don't just pick one algorithm and report that you should probably be reporting an assemblage interesting when was this paper published and uh 2017 oh yeah and a an assemble method, I forget what was the actual word they used. An ensemble method or an Ooh. ensemble of... Combining them in an ensemble. <laughs> it's nice when biologists come up with a word which is quite fun and catchy. <laughs> yeah, but the basically the point is, the paper we're looking at right now just does Maxent. And probably future stuff should do multiple algorithms and report multiple algorithms, at least in some sort of supplementary mm. form, to back up 
that distribution. So basically, a smorgasbord of algorithms is superior to one. Well, it does because I think the the point is that no one algorithm is going to be better than all the others in every single single situation, and it's hard to know beforehand which is going to be performing better because you don't know what the true answer really is. It's hard to it's hard to test these things. I mean, you do subset your data to test it. That's something that they do do in this paper. Absolutely, they take seventy. They build the model based on seventy-five percent of the data points, and then test it on the remaining twenty-five to make sure that those twenty-five are in, you know, agreement with what the model has outputted. Yeah, yeah. Tell you what, one thing. But I... just doing a whole bunch would be would be better mm. as well. Mm. One thing I do notice about their distribution, just simply by looking at the diagram, is that um, you know how it says these snakes are really intolerant of disturbance? Yes. They're living in a mosaic of disturbance. And really, it looks like a lot of those occurrences are probably severely fragmented, right? Do you, would you agree? Um, yeah, it's difficult, though, because because a lot of their records are from like old museum stuff uh, okay they might not be have been in fragmented areas at the time of that uh, record being made right right yeah so yeah it could be that their current range isn't actually again that's another problem with with species distribution mapping is it doesn't really take into account the changes if your records are 200 years old because mm. a lot has changed <laughs> yeah I just had a quick look on Google Earth to see what this area looks like, and it looks like lush forest all over. Um, but obviously, it's some of it's regrown after logging mm. or what have you. It's quite funny, actually. The um, the area of Karat, um, the imaging that they've used for Google Earth, there's like a massive line down the centre of that peninsula uh, where it's... Um, half cloudy and half not they've obviously taken the pictures on different days and it's like really high, <laughs> high cloud cover on one side and then there's like no cloud oh no that's just a it's just a strange <laughs> geographical barrier it stops all the clouds <laughs> it's the truman show um so the point of this paper what did they yeah so i went off on a tangent for the modeling but the point is that they had they then had a species distribution model that showed that these snakes could probably range anywhere from, oh, I don't know, what do you have some landmarks from like northern Panama up to central Costa Rica, I guess, but all on that Pacific coast, interestingly, which covered an area of around 10,507 kilometers squared. So pretty much triple that of their current distribution. Or potential distribution. Yeah? So... Sorry, extent of occurrence. <laughs> current extent of occurrence based on the records was around 3,400. Total potential distribution based on their sort of climatic niche was 10,500. Kilometres squared. Kilometres squared, yeah. So what did they propose? Did they propose it should they should have an IUCN rating? Did they explicitly state? Well, they vulnerable. suggested they said that, vulnerable, didn't um, they? yeah, it could be vulnerable or even endangered. Basically, depending on how 
which of their metrics you use. If you're going by just their area of extent, I think it was they should be classified as endangered, but the sort of climate modelling suggested just vulnerable. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like it's it's going to be at least vulnerable for these guys because of their limited distribution. Yeah, yeah. Given what you've said as well about the uh, shortfalls of this approach, and they do so they do mention them themselves in the paper. They do. Yeah, absolutely. Probably best to err on the side of caution, which is interesting to see. But I guess they probably just haven't got round to it. There's so many species to be um, assessed, isn't there? Well, that and it's hard to assess something without some level of population data, mm. and. They mentioned a couple of times how unbelievably hard these snakes are to find. Yes. You're, you're dealing with a nocturnal terrestrial viper. That is... I suppose the only thing you've got going for you is they're slightly bigger than other vipers you might be looking for. Yeah, but... nocturnal and a little bit crepuscular as well, but nevertheless, they sh- also shun disturbed habitats. And they're probably yeah. they're probably naturally quite uncommon because of their size. Yeah. Yeah. No, a very difficult species to study, or at least it strikes me like they would be. Yeah. Well, they. I mean, I can't say they, they're probably naturally uncommon, but they're, it's it's not unlikely that they exist in pretty low densities. Yeah. There again, there's probably an abundance of small mammals in forests, so maybe they exist in relatively high densities. It's just that they're hard to spot. Extremely cryptic. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, the venom of these snakes. Yeah. Which paper did you read about the venom of these snakes? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. I I didn't think I read the paper. I went on this like um, toxinology website, which is like a advice for doctors type of thing. I can't remember what it was called now. Uh... Well, I read a DS twenty sixteen DS et al twenty sixteen paper. Oh yeah. On them putting the venom in uh, anesthetized rats. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they put in uh, 1.5 milligrams to a kilogram, and that caused some some hypertension, which is high blood pressure. But they survived, all these little rats, these poor sleepy rats. I hate reading these papers, but they're so damn interesting. It's such a, I'm so conflicted. At least they anaesthetised the rats. <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, I guess. Um, then they upped the dosage to uh, 3 milligrams per kilogram. And then we had quite severe hypertension, so high blood pressure. Uh, most of the rats died within 20 minutes. And during that time, they had heart fluctuations, uh, heart rate slowed down, and then just before the end, some sort of respiratory problems. And yeah, final cardiac arrest. So that's how these guys are killing you, is messing with your blood. Yeah, what they do to the blood is pretty grim, actually, isn't it? They, um, they So they've got... A combination of hemorrhagins and also um, coagulopathic effects. So it's the double whammy of your cells and capillaries of bursting, releasing your blood, and your blood's ability to clot is severely diminished. It's, so you, yeah. yeah, you basically just turn into soup. <laughs> you just get slowly digested. Yeah, um, yeah, and in in people, you you get nauseous, you vomit, you get diarrhea, you sweat. So it's basically like a really bad hangover with loads of pain. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, the same effects you said for rats, leading to death. Yeah, pretty grim. Yeah, not fun. Um, yeah, they reckon the website I was looking at. I don't know if it's reliable or not, but it seems like you know 
clinical it's called toxinology.com it's sort of clinical toxinology resources from the university of adelaide so presumably it's like some kind of online database and it had a lot of information on there yeah they reckon that a lot of bites go unreported because um people yeah. just die because you know look, everything we've described is a snake that lives in an area which is difficult to reach and um not close to habitation so and you're talking about being bitten by a viper that's three meters long yeah that is a gonna have a huge venom yield or potentially huge venom yield you've got to imagine a snake that size so pretty big are you telling me that venom yield has a relationship with body size I might be suggesting that. <laughs> Should we get on to the second paper then? Would you like to know more? <laughs> Do tell. So, second paper is by Ruth Boyer, Lenari, Irazu, Laskowitz, Sabatini and Damen. Uh, 2016, Venom Yield and its Relationship to Body Size and Fang Separation of Pit Vipers from Argentina. Published in Toxicon. Yeah. Yeah. To- so, exactly that. Yeah, so as you just... Told you I had a segue. Yeah, I mean, that was... <laughs> that wasn't the way the segue was going, but... That was pretty neat. <laughs> it was like professional mission. So, uh, yeah, Toxicon... I don't know if I'd read much from Toxicon before. It's a paper specialising in research on toxins, as you might have gleaned from the name. Um, So, like, research on the properties or effects of venoms and poisons, um, clinical observations, uh, antivenoms, etc. So that's kind of... Mm. That's kind of the the scene that this paper finds itself in. (laughs) Yeah, and like you say, venom yield of snakes, which is the amount of venom that comes out of their fangs when they bite, uh, is known to be related to a few different things. Uh, as you mentioned, the size of the snake is one of the most important. The bigger the snake, the more venom that comes out of it, as you might expect, because obviously... Makes sense. Yeah, bigger snake, bigger food, more venom to kill the food. Um, the snake's length, uh, body condition as well. So if the snake's healthy, big, fat, healthy snakes obviously have more energy to put into venom production than a horrible, yeah. weak, emaciated, skinny runt of a snake. Um, well, exactly, venom production is not a cheap endeavor is it no yeah these are quite complex proteins so i mean my understanding's limited but from what i understand you know ven- well, that's what people always say isn't it <laughs> yeah that's what people always say yeah so venom cost is costly um yeah and venom is production is also related to um head size and the distance between the fangs so bigger mm. bigger heads and wider spread fangs have been found in other snakes to yield more venom yeah, so basically this paper is looking at those relationships for two species found in Argentina, right? That's the idea, with the the sort of uh, motivation to help inform anti-venom, uh, well, three bits of sort of the anti-venom market, uh, realm, whatever the right word is for it. One is being able to sort of by body size and morphology of a snake, know how much venom it might be able to produce for anti-venom purposes. So you don't take too many snakes from the wild, or not enough, or whatever, you get the right amount. Um, The potential of helping to ID snakes from fang marks and bite marks, and have a better understanding of how IDing and the characteristics of a bite mark can relate to what you should be giving a person in terms of anti-venom. Yes. 
Yeah. So basically, those two. Yeah. 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 Because of... demands and uh, application of anti venom. Yeah, because anti venom production is a bit of a ball ache, isn't it? You got to keep the snakes in a serpentarium. You got to milk them, you know, every week or couple of weeks once they've got new venom. You got. I think s- it's a couple. I think these ones were a couple of weeks. It was they were fed every fifteen days, but milked at the end of those fifteen days. Right when the venom's had a chance to store up, yeah. And obviously, then you've got to send it away and poke it into a horse, and it's just a whole ordeal. So yeah, they're kind of or goats or goats. Okay. Uh, Raphdophis antivenoms made using goats. <laughs> really? I think. How bizarre. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously you don't want to keep more snakes than you need to keep up with demand. Otherwise, ven- anti-venom has a, sh- a shelf life. So yeah, as you say, this should be a good well, way. it's of... expensive upkeeping this stuff. And, you know, you got to find the snakes and do all the, <laughs> you know, keeping snakes self and safe and healthy. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like you say, there are two species of Argentinian vipers that they were looking at. Uh, the first of which is called Bothrops alternatus, aka the Urutu. Although that taxonomy is actually now out of date, it's since been reclassified as Rhinocerophus alternatus, which um, is cool because Rhinocerophus means horned nose snake, and they got little horns. Uh, yeah, they changed them in Fenwick 2009. Because apparently Bothrops, you know, Bothrops was massive, wasn't it? And I, th- I don't know if there's still troubles with it, but um, Bothrops ranged everywhere, didn't it? It's... Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not... It was a huge, huge covering. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, Bothrops as a genus, like genetic work, kind of found out that they didn't all descend from one common ancestor. So, you know, what did they do? And Fenwick 2009 decided to take some out. Uh, wiggle some around, some jiggery pokery to try and make it so that there was a genus which had a common ancestor. So they created this genus Rhinocerophus for this snake and five or six others. I can't remember. Um, which, mm. which again is important for venom production because there's a phylogenetic component to the the venom. Um, snakes which are closely related are likely to have similar compounds in their venom. So it's good to have venomous snakes like this classified into smaller groups. It helps doctors. Yes. Um, I did have this point in relation to species of bi week, but I'll bring it up now as you've brought up the point of separate species being critical to ID oh, yeah. because of the venom differences. And um, later on, there's, I think they cited a Sanders et al. 2006 paper, but the one that immediately came to my mind when you talk about that stuff is a very recent one in Toxicological Letters um, by... Rogolsky? Rogolsky? Right. Um, which is looking at how the venom differs in source-scaled vipers in different species and how anti-venom has quite a narrow uh, effective range and how some anti-venoms have been sold for source-scaled vipers in different areas but they don't really have that, you know, they're largely ineffective because of the differences in the specific species or just geographical variation in uh, venoms yeah. and that is a massive deal when it comes to us well a lot of vipers because they're one of the most frequent uh snakes involved in in bites human bites especially echis they're just so little and so mm. so deadly yeah actually um conservatism in the venom as well so despite the fact that they are uh primarily invertebrate eaters a lot of them they still maintained venom which is pretty intense for mammals 
Yeah. Pretty awesome snakes. Yeah. Shame about their sort of impact. Yes, they're cool. But aside from that, very nice. Yeah, really cool. So, yeah, the other species. So that one, Bothrops alternatus, a.k.a. the Arutu, um, they eat mice, other small mammals, uh, and they're found on the kind of eastern side of South America, from South Brazil to Uruguay, east to Paraguay, and obviously Argentina. Um, yeah, they look like they've got Iron Man faces all down their flanks. They've got really weird pattern with, like, bright lines. Um, and then, yeah, the rest, they just sort of look like a typical pit viper, don't they? have just got that massive head, light lines over dark blotches. And they had 102 of these that they studied the venom of. And then the other snake they used was uh, the Central American rattlesnake, uh, Crotalus derisus terrificus. Although this isn't, strictly speaking, a study in Central America, so I doubt they call this subspecies that. I couldn't find a common name for them. Um, but yeah, from Brazil, Uruguay, far northeast Argentina, Paraguay, Peru, and Bolivia. And they have 38 of those. And that's cool because it's a rattlesnake in Central and South America, which is weird. Yes, well, it's a South American rattlesnake, I believe one of its common names is, isn't it? Yeah, I guess they have, like, they probably just call it different things depending on which area the subspecies is found in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this one's the East, Northeast Central American rattlesnake. North, North, Northeast. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, as we said, they were looking at sort of various characters of these snakes which might be associated with venom uh, yield. So body length, weight, uh, distance between the fangs. Um, what else was there? The venom yield itself, obviously. Anyway, they did those various variables, including the distance between the fang marks, both on the thing they're biting and the distance between the actual fangs. They open the snake's mouth and measure the distance between the fangs. Yes, which is is important to know the actual fang marks because that's what a doctor or whoever is going to see yeah. post-bite as opposed to seeing the actual distance between fangs of the snake unless they whack the snake and brought it in with them. Yeah, of course, if they whack the snake and bring it in with them, they're not wasting their time measuring the distance between the fangs. They're looking at the snake and being like, oh, that's a Central American rattlesnake. That's what you've been bitten by and that's the <laughs> anti-venom. You'd hope so. Oh, wait a minute, let me measure the fangs. Oh, this could be a Central American <laughs> rattlesnake. The rattle's a bit of a giveaway, like you're wasting your time there, mate. <laughs> well, it depends how hard they whacked it. Yeah, true, valid. Yeah, just chopped it up into little bits. Only brought its face. <laughs> brought its fangs. <laughs> well, yeah, but they found in all the course of their studies, that's what they did. They measured the venom of these sort of 140 snakes of two species. And um, generally speaking, what they found was that within the species, the biggest the snake, the more venom it had, and the bigger the space was between the puncture marks, which seems somewhat obvious. But, you know, unless you study them, you don't know. Because there's a lot of rumours and stuff around venom delivery yes. from baby snakes being more because they somehow can't control it you know they're so naive they're just babies oh they squirt all the venom into one go like you know i mean <laughs> they can't control themselves yeah they're just like they just have a bloodlust yeah you know if you make a baby snake jump it will just like shoot venom out um yeah or yeah or they just haven't learned you can to just tame squeeze their... it out them like a fruit yeah they haven't learned to tame their terrible bloodlust as soon as they see a human they just want to kill it with as much venom as possible um mm. yeah so that was generally speaking the bigger the snake the more venom although uh, the difference between small and medium-sized snakes wasn't that great for the um, rattlesnakes. The, there wasn't a significant difference. But then once they got to be adults, there was a huge difference. There was a lot more venom. Yeah, I found that really cool. So your buff, uh, 
I'm going, I'm calling buffer ops because it's easier to say. Um, buffer ops was a more sort of linear increase in as the snakes got bigger, venom yield increased, and it seemed you know. Yeah. That seems relatively uh, sensible, but as you say, the Crotalis, there was this sharp increase. So, from a medical standpoint, if you've suddenly, if you've got fan mar- fang marks that are suggesting you've got a snake of sixty centimeters or something, and you've got fang marks which is suggesting they're just over a hundred centimeters, that venom yield could be what's that? Six six times greater. Right. That's a I lot. I think it was. That's a lot. The, just going by the median, I mean, it could be a absolute. A maximum if you had a snake between a meter and a half meter of like eighty milligrams of venom compared to a maximum of maybe fifty. So a huge difference in the amount of venom delivered, and that means a hugely different response in terms of applying you know, getting anti venom, how much anti venom to apply and how sort of seriously you're treating this bite. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, definitely. Something I found interesting too to do with the venom delivery was that um, Alternatus is smaller and less heavily bodied um, than the rattlesnake, but it gave a lot more venom. So the adults were delivering sort of on average 132 milligrams compared to 87 for the uh, rattlesnake. I just thought it was interesting that the smaller snake actually delivers more venom as an adult. I wonder what type of venom crotalis this crotalis has because some of them have neurotoxic elements to their venom don't they yeah what is it called crotalis derisus yeah let me have a look on my toxicology website because that might have something that might play into venom yields yeah maybe that's true if you got a neuro if you got a potent neurotoxin good night <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. No data. Uh, there's not a lot of data there. Oh, okay. Crutalis derisus. Crutalis derisus. Terrificus, right? Yeah. Terrificus. The terrific snake. What does terrificus actually mean? Something like Terrific. Surely. It says terrifying or awe-inspiring. Oh, definitely awe-inspiring. I think we'll go with the latter. Yeah. Okay, so I put in Crotalis derisus from Argentina, and I have found it. Crotalis derisus, subspecies terrificus. Nice. Here we have the venom. Okay, so venom neurotoxins, right? Yep, yeah, presynaptic neurotoxins. So those. Are oh, they are neurotoxic. So they're interesting. Presynaptic means they're neurotoxins that you get better from, right? You don't get permanent brain damage. Is that right? Presynaptic, as opposed to postsynaptic. Yeah. Oh. Once you get into I, terms this complicated, you can't just Wikipedia it. <laughs> I no, I think you are right though. Uh, I don't know 100%, but yeah, one of them one of them get, I mean, this is like, you know, properly basic venom stuff. I don't know anything about it, but there's one which you're, you know, it's temporary, you know, your breathing's labored and your cardiovascular function goes to pot, but you eventually get better. There's no permanent damage to the brain. Whereas, yeah, it, it basically it just mutes your nerves as opposed to killing your nerves. Yeah, but then there are snakes which give you nerve damage and you have to kind of relearn how to walk. But I think those are Australian elapids, no? Mate, I don't know. I don't know, and I'm going to just say I don't know. Mm. So um, I, I don't know. Any corrections on that would be great. But yeah, there's also sort of some procoagulants and uh, some muscle destruction, but it's secondary. Um, okay. Yeah. 
That's interesting. You have a neurotoxic element. Yeah. They... What about uh, our bothrops? Uh, mate, I'm really impressed that you've clocked that. That was quite very astute. Right. Well, it's right. it's because there's there's that whole stupid uh, uh, like urban legend that there's those neurotoxic super rattlesnakes spreading across the Midwest or wherever they're at the Southwest US because they're breeding with uh, regular hematoxic and cytotoxic venomous snakes yeah and everything so, oh no but it's not really happening at all Mate, and i gotta say you're exactly right they're not more deadly or anything yeah you're exactly right so um yeah the rhinocerophis sultanatus the Arutu, uh which delivers more venom um doesn't have neurotoxins if it does have uh procoagulants and that's it oh and hemorrhagins possibly it says here so and necrotoxins too. So yeah, so it's mm. much more blood based. So yeah, you need more venom to kill via blood than you do. That would make sense. Mm. I mean, I presume their prey is relatively similar. Yeah, they're both prey. That's, on the, other, small that's the other alternative. Is they're taking? If one was taking, I don't know, reptiles, it might need more venom to deal with that. But uh, I think they're both eating mammals. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Cool. So yeah, well, different strategies for murder help explain it. Yeah, very interesting. Wow, what a great segue. I've learned something really cool. So, um, yeah. Yeah, like you said earlier, they... Um, what I mean, and these findings go some way to helping doctors one day maybe look at fang marks and decide what kind of a snake it is. Um, you know, and they suggest that future studies which study snake bite and venom and have an opportunity to gather these uh, variables from real snakes yes should do so because then we can start to create a bank and you know information is power so the more yeah. snakes I, I did quite i mean you, you joked about oh quick measure the fangs instead of recognizing what the snake is but afterwards if you do get a chance to measure the fangs and you know basic morphometrics to the snake definitely do do it and definitely include it in your any clinical uh report afterwards and you say building that that sort of actual uh, on the ground relationship between snake size and clinical uh, outcomes would be fantastic to know, wouldn't it? Yeah. Banging. Um, hmm. Anything else? Anything else? Anything yeah, else just one have? thing. Why do we call it milking a snake? Um, because we're not a particularly inventive species and basically snakes are like cows of the undergrowth yeah okay that's a reasonable answer right should we go into the species of the bye week <laughs> yeah i do want to say a couple of things <laughs> just as a couple of caveats to their study that they brought up which need to be okay my caveat uh, is that of... loads of stuff i said about venom might be wrong because i don't know anything about it <laughs> oh right okay <laughs> You carry on with your carry. I was just going to say some stuff they, they mentioned needs to be sort of looked at and thought about is actually how much venom, venom these snakes deliver in a sort of defensive human bite. Because while, they're, while they've milked them and got these quantities, there's not too much known about how those quantities during milking will relate to the actual venom injected into someone in a sort of stressed out 
snake trying to get away sort of situation. Yeah, and no snake... Because you do hear of things like dry bites, Yeah, and you do hear of multiple bites to one victim. Don't call them a victim. The snake's the victim. <laughs> well, okay. Anyway, yeah, no, I think victims. that's a really interesting point, because... Um, if you think about it as well, there's no snake venom toxic enough to stop the snake being killed in the encounter. No snake venom will kill you before you have a chance to kill the snake. So from a snake's perspective, mm. really, the only thing the bite is doing is maybe causing you some immediate slight pain, but it's got to be really fast. Um, and then also just the shock of being bitten at all. Um, so, yeah, you would think yeah. that there's not much point in these snakes, you know, letting go their entire arsenal of venom into you because they're going to need that to eat. Well, especially when it comes to something neurotoxic, which might take a little, won't have that immediate pain, perhaps. It, yeah, it's interesting, and, and I don't know. Maybe there'll be an increased venom here because the snake's stressed, and you know they can't they can't control their little their little venom glands. <laughs> yeah, it could be that. The poor souls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stranger things happen. Um, yeah. Oh, I forgot to say as well. I said that the. Uh, Rhino Serophis has been reclassified since this paper. It was actually reclassified in 2009, but the authors of this paper just haven't adopted it for whatever reason. Well, that's quite understandable. It happens a lot. Especially with the clinical um, implications. They might have wanted to go with the more widely used name as opposed to the most up-to-date, maybe. Yeah, they're probably just not taxonomists. They didn't, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to keep on top of all these damn name changes, to be honest. Well, it isn't, it isn't. I mean, if I was studying a snake, I would go and have a look. Maybe they don't agree with it. Maybe they don't, yeah. Maybe this is their Mm. um, silent protest. Their rebuttal. Yeah. Cool, so should we move on to the species of the bye week? I think it's about time for that. Yeah, I think we've done those two papers nicely. Justice, bit of Bushmaster stuff, bit of Venom stuff. So the speed of the bye week is by Doan, Mason, Casto, Sasa, Parkinson, 2016, a cryptic palm pit viper species, Squamata viripiridae bothriacus, from the Costa Rican highlands, with notes on the variation within B. nigroviridis. Zootaxa. So yeah, similarly to the chameleons we discussed a couple of episodes ago, uh, these pit vipers of the genus bothriacus, which I used to pronounce bothriacus, but... Um, Bothriacus. Yeah, I was told by... Uh, it's actually Jonathan Clegg who told me, he was like, that's not how you pronounce it. And I was like, okay, you've studied them. <laughs> I'll defer <laughs> I'll defer to you. Uh, yeah, so they're... Yeah, in the Central American highlands, they kind of exist on sky islands, like the chameleons we discussed in episode 18. Um, mm. Although the exception to that is uh, Bothriacus schlegeli, the, the old uh, eyelash palm pit viper, which is found quite widespread across lowland areas in Central America. But and also used to be Bothrops, right? Yeah, we'll go with that. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. But... Some other Bothriacuses did used to be Bothrops. Yes, yeah. I mean... So that's our segue into the species of the bye week. Ah, good. Oh, well, and then. also the distribution of these guys, because we're back in Costa Rica. We are. Yes, we are. Um, so we come full circle. Yeah. So this paper was f- initially they set out to study Bothriacus nigroviridis. The 
which whose name just means black and green Bothriakis, which is quite cool because they're black and green. Um, Straight to the point. Yeah, I like it. No they're around. good looking snakes. They are. They're very, very handsome snakes. Um, but yeah, in these cloud forests and high elevation forests in Costa Rica and northern Panama. So, um, you know, there's lowland all around. And then these Bothriakis snakes are generally found on the sort of slopes and higher elevation areas where it's a little bit cooler, a little bit wetter, slightly different vegetation. That's what they've uh, adapted to live in. And so the authors of this paper were looking at the genetic and morphological variation among different populations of these black and green pit vipers. Uh, yeah, they had a sort of phylogeny. They did some genetic stuff, both kinds of genetics. Ben, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, and they were also... Both, uh, both kinds. Both kinds. Nu- both the nu- first type and the second type. Type nuclear and type mitochondrial. Oh, nice. Yeah, hold tight. They did both. And uh, yeah, they were analysing scale characters as well. They used a principal, principal component analysis for that, yada yada. And uh, what they found was that this species they were studying was actually composed of two very deeply divergent lineages. So there was two distinct genetic populations, one of which had a restricted range in the northern and central uh, mountain region called the Cordillera Talamanca. And the other was ranging sort of throughout the central... Tilleran and Talamanca Cordilleras. So the Cordilleras are like kind of the mountain ranges. So what they decided um, was that because the northern one appears distinct, both morphologically and genetically, from the relatively wide-ranging uh, Bothriacus nigroviridis, um, they'd rename it as a new species and uh, represent it properly, represent the cryptic diversity, and they named it Bothriacus nubestris. Which yes, is which has a yeah, it's an awesome fantastic name. meaning, right? Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's basically meaning belonging to the clouds. Yeah, I mean that's so cool. It's a, yeah. yeah, the Latin noun nubes, which means cloud, and the Latin suffix estris, which means belonging to. I mean that's really so, really inventive so, naming as well because they've satisfied all the nomenclature rules. I I just think it's absolutely banging. What a great name! So basically, it's mean their full name is Pit Viper Cloud Belonging. Yeah. Right. Is that what Bothriacus means? Well, I think. Well, Bothrops. Is is that to do with fangs? Bothro means pit. Oh, does it? I or like something along those lines. And Ekis is Greek for viper. Oh wow. So cloud, so the pit viper belonging to the clouds. Yeah, I mean it's it it really is as so, sort of simple and perfect as that. So romantic. Um, yeah. So with the, I mean, should we talk about how this snake looks? It's pretty awesome. It's a good looking snake. It's good looking snake. It looks like a. Where are my pictures? There are my pictures. It looks like a a black sock bulging with emeralds. Ah, uh, yes. The uh, Pit Viper Black Sock Bulging with Emerald Snake. Yeah. It's just... It doesn't quite have the same ring as belonging to the clouds now, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm struggling to find my picture. Where have I put the picture? I wanted to refer to a picture! Uh, yeah, you describe what it looks like, because I can't actually see it right this second. So, quite a classic arboreal viper shape. Mm. So, relatively slim body, quite slender, but this massive... Uh, triangular head 
slightly blunted nose. Um, in terms of coloration, I've got a sort of paler, yellowy underside uh, going into this very sort of deep emerald green. I mean, emerald green is right. And then a mottled black and yellow top. Yeah. And with some quite nice stripes behind the eye in uh, in black as well. Yeah, your classic counter... Which is quite a... Classic counter shading on the underside too, like you said, white yeah. sort of like really light underneath and then darker on top. I mean, it would be exceptionally well camouflaged, this snake. Yeah, and quite... I don't know, would you, are those keeled scales? There's, there's a certain roughness. Uh, let me zoom in. To them, I'm not sure... Mm, I can't see whether they're killed or not. I don't think they are. They just have quite a rough look to them. Yeah. Uh, Looking at the preserved pictures, they don't look very killed. No, they don't look killed in the photos, but I don't know. They do have a nice... They, they look quite textured, is what I'm going with. Apparently, the scales in the parietal region are small and keeled. Ah, so we do have some keeling. <laughs> On the face. There we go. Um, the holotype, 779mm SVL, with another 132.2 on the tail, and a head length of around 39mm. So it's quite a small... So, yeah, not a, not a monstrous viper, so but quite... Did you say? I don't know. I feel quite typical for arboreal total, vipers. Total length one hundred and thirty-two millimeters. Did you say? No, total length is uh, about a thousand millimeters. Yeah, obviously. Why am I saying a hundred? That would be tiny. <laughs> That'd be tiny. Yeah, cool. That's cool. So it's like a meter long. Hmm. I mean, it's yeah. It, it's a nice. It's a nice sized viper. And um. So there's a few theories that they propose as to why these two speciated, why there's not just one species, why they have to be cryptically two species. Uh, the first, oh, they do it just to mock people, don't <laughs> they? They do it just to confuse us, yeah, or just to encourage snake aficionados to spend more time in Costa Rica. Yeah, but no, well, one of the reasons why they speciated theories is that there was a common ancestor. Well, there was obviously a common ancestor, but the mountains kind of rose beneath them. And then they diverged on the peaks they found themselves on. Um, which, you know, maybe, but to me, looking at the map, that doesn't quite add up because you've got this sort of... The distributions are such that um, there's this big ridge of mountains running from kind of northwest to southeast and then lowlands in between. The new species is kind of sitting in the middle, whereas the other species is kind of split both sides. Well, and what's also interesting is in the previous paper we were talking about Bushmasters, the northern extent of their range was at these mountains. Um, and one of the points I make in the paper is we probably think that it's going beyond this because there are no bi biogeographical barriers between here and like northern Panama and places. So to me that was suggesting that those authors didn't feel like there was some sort of barrier for the Bushmasters range but here we seem to you know having suggested to us that these mountains are enough of a barrier to speciate these two species right so there's something going on here but I don't think there's particular agreement how much 
I mean, okay, arboreal to terrestrial, I don't know how much difference that's going to make. But we're talking about two, you know, viper species treating mountains in different ways, perhaps? Yeah, I think... That... I don't know, I think you, you you were sounding unconvinced of the mountain well, blocking them. Well, no, I think... I don't think that they just were in one place and then the mountains rose and they speciated subsequently. I think it's more likely what you're describing where one or some were more willing to disperse along different sort of more heterogeneous habitats and then they found themselves in different places whereas others didn't stay put and speciated differently. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering... I don't know, I I think the mountains might just be a sort of convenience because, again, going back to that uh, Bushmaster paper, you looked at the climate modelling and it didn't look like the Atlantic coast side of Costa Rica was appropriate for these bushmasters. So regardless of geographical barrier, biogeographical barrier or not, it was a slightly different climate niche. So that might be what's what's helped the speciation. Yeah. There are It's no it's no barrier in fact, but just more climatic. Mm. Interesting that you say that, because there is of course the Atlantic Bushmaster which loves that coast, which is a different species. Yeah. yeah. So yeah that, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. So um brilliant. That's the species of the bi week, a new badass pit viper. Welcome to science, pit viper. Yeah. With a cool name. Very, very cool. Yeah. Um do we have a conservation suggested conservation status? Uh yeah, they did mention it. Um what did they say? They said da, 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 da. These characteristics predispose it to a high risk of extinction, and thus measures to preserve this species should be a high priority. Yeah. That's Bothriacus nubestris, cool new snake, um, likely to be vulnerable. Although at least it's in the highlands, which are much more difficult to convert to cow grazing. So that's at least something. Uh, and we do now know that it exists, yeah. which of course does help. Yes, it's always good to know that. Yeah, it can have that. It can stop having its crisis as well now. So. So. Uh, extras. So we've got some corrections to go through. Um, All right. What do we got? Well, what did I say now? Well, it was a combination of both of us saying all sorts of mad stuff. Apparently, excellent. As long as I'm not out on out on yeah all alone. No, no one. <laughs> thankfully, no one who's ever corrected us has ever specified which one of us was wrong, and I struggled to recall. So that's always good. Um, it's because they can't actually tell us <clears throat> tell us apart. Yeah, we're just both English, aren't we? So Mark Shirts got in touch. Uh, he listened to episode 18 about chameleons, big trouble in little chameleons, and he <laughs> noticed quite a few errors, which, you know, is awesome, because, I mean, he knows an awful lot about Madagascan chameleons. He's just come back from months in the forest. So, first of all, was that Madagascar has four chameleon genera. That was actually me who incorrectly stated there was only three. I said there was Brachysia, uh, Brachysia, uh, bloody hell, what were they? Brachysia... Fursifer and Kaluma. And Kaluma, yes. yes. But I know there is also a fourth one, which was described relatively recently, I think in around 2013, uh, which is called Pallion, which is, um, they're a little clade, which were formerly Brachysia, uh, but they're now not. They look sort of similar to Brachysia leafy type things. Uh, he also said that all chameleons are diurnal, and basically 
every single brachysia you ever pick up will feign death. So that's quite cool because we were enjoying the fact that they yes, were feigning Yes, that, that was how they were measuring the things. We were saying it was so cool that they didn't have to anaesthetise any yeah. of these guys for the measurements. Yeah. And I, but yes, that's what it was because I was worried about a bias towards ones that would feign death. Yeah. But now knowing that all of them feign death, then yeah, that isn't even vaguely a concern. Yeah, and I think what we were saying was that we That's we think really useful. <laughs> were we saying we thought all chameleons were diurnal, but we weren't like committing to saying it? Um, yes, probably. But yeah, he's confirmed they are, which is cool. Uh, yeah, next thing was uh, Brachysia tails. They're only very weakly prehensile because we were talking about the difference in the tails and adaptation for more floor dwellingness. Uh, but apparently, they're really yes. light. They're very light. They're not heavy tails, so um, they don't restrict their climbing. Um, and also, there are chameleons with heavy tails that live high in the trees, so it's not not a big deal whether they're heavy or light. Mm. So something else is driving the differences between what was it? Differences between disturbed and non-disturbed had slight differences in tail length. Wait, yeah, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we were we were sort of waxing lyrical about that, weren't we? We were hypothesising. So uh, yeah. Uh, but we now know that it's nothing to do with climbing. No, no, case closed. So, um, yeah, Mark also said he'd be hesitant to say what's causative between brachysia and secondary and primary forest in that paper. Uh, there's more understory in primary forest, so it could be that the chameleons there are simply there due to opportunity. Uh, he said it's not controlled in the study as far as he knows. Was it controlled in the study? Understory? Yeah. Like, did yeah. they... Could they? Did they make? Did they make an allowance for the fact that there was more understory, or did they mention that it wasn't controlled? I can't remember. Um, well, I can't honestly remember them doing a measurement of uh, like habitat complexity. No, they didn't, did they? They just mentioned it. It was it was categoric. That's what one of the things we said right at the end was. This would be cool to do again, but with more detailed separation yes that's exactly what it was it was categorized and so it you know it's not taken into account in that sense um no i think that's the way you do it again isn't it you you wouldn't categorize it you would instead do you know regardless of primary secondary degraded maybe that's how you you'd set your you know stratified sampling up or something but then do some sort of measurement of complexity and other uh, characteristics of habitat as opposed to categories. Yeah, so there wasn't... It was just a case of these chameleons are behaving differently here. Yeah, it wasn't... A, they didn't... You didn't explicitly measure the yeah the habitat. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think that was the whole sort of thrust of the paper was, hey, this is cool. This might be need to be looked in in more detail. So... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then he also went on to say uh, Laborde, because we were discussing Laborde's chameleon and how we didn't like the fact that it was called Laborde's chameleon. Uh, apparently Laborde was the one who provided the specimens from which the species was described uh, and therefore the species was named after him, which has always been common practice in taxonomy, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, but continues today. Um, well, nevertheless, I still frown on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to change my mind on things named after people, I'm afraid. Yeah, Laborde's lame. Um, but yeah. I, I mean, at least, there's a, at least we now know the story behind it. Yeah, yeah, it's good to know. Um, That's more what that information was as opposed to... <laughs> yeah, but Laborde's, Laborde's long dead and the chameleons don't belong to him, so yeah. Wow. 
there we go. Never mind. Yeah. So, and then finally, a big one, which is really interesting, and I want to read this paper. This is the best one. Yeah. Right? This, this is, is the, best the one. out of Africa, yeah. out of Madagascar yeah, cause, hypothesis. Because you got me all excited yes. about. Uh, out of Madagascar, you know, all chameleons radiated from beginnings in Madagascar. Um, but that was the Raxworthy paper. Apparently, yes, Tolly. Yeah, 2002 Raxworthy paper. Yeah, well, Tolly and Co. have refuted it, Crystal Tolly. And now it's held that chameleons are an out of Africa radiation, but the route is very old and we can't be 100% sure. So, jury's still kind of out? Is that what you're saying? Don't know. I haven't read the paper. I'm just going on what Mark said. So, yeah, it sounds like the jury's still out, although likely out of Africa. It would make sense because everything else is out of Africa. It would be... That's what made the chameleon story so weird. Was, like, I was going through all these things. Okay, those guys turned up that sort of time. They sort of turned up that sort of time. And then, oh... Chameleons went the other way. Yeah. <laughs> like what? Chameleons were just then, sailing, you know, sailing they past. They are kind them. of weird. <laughs> so okay. Nice. So yeah, I mean that's awesome. Thank you very much, Mark, for all of those. Um, yeah. Um. What else? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, we've had some nice emails, haven't we? Thanks for all the emails. Um, yes, we have. Thank you very much. Some suggestions and recommendations too, which I'm sure will be coming up in future episodes, right? Yeah, 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 definitely the stuff. Uh, Yannick sent us some cool stuff about um, bugs and frogs, which I won't spoil, but expect um, invertebrates strike back. <laughs> Coming soon. Again. Yeah, well, yeah, because it's kind of weird, because in the, what was the first episode called? Invertebrates strike back. Oh, yeah, so I was going to do Return of the Invertebrates. but Yeah, I think we should do Return of the yeah, Invertebrates. Yeah, but the thing is with that is that invertebrates strike back is like I know, I know. It's the empire, yeah, and then you're switching, then you're switching it over switching to Return, Return of the Jedi. Of the Jedi. Know. Yeah, but um, Yannick had some really cool stuff about beetles from Carabidae just like munching on frogs and being super ruthless. So yeah, we're all about that. We're definitely going digging into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other stuff. Uh, oh yeah, so uh, Tom Gibson, big up Tom. He told me he's another PhD student. He told me that. Um, in England, there's a species of fly which lays its eggs on common toads. It like exclusively lays its eggs on common toads, and then they eat the toad's flesh, and then they sort of explode out in a process called meiosis. Mm. And it's just gross. And just that was a cool example of that. Sounds horrific. Yeah. I tell you what, I bet you that frog has certain uh, adaptations to allow it to consume bufotoxins. That fly. Yeah. And I bet you they're very specific and an excellent example of convergent evolution. Molecular convergent evolution, nonetheless. Molecular convergent evolution, the most boring kind. Mm. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> so small, you can't see it. No, I'm joking. Like, um, myiasis of the common toad caused by the blowfly Lucilia ampelacea. Yeah, so um, it's gross. Yeah, they just... It's gross, but kind of cool in a morbid sci-fi kind of way. Yeah, but what's interesting about it is that the toads, when the blowflies munch on them, they die. So the blowflies are kind of like sustainably harvesting toads. They're not using so many that they go extinct because otherwise they won't have a population to feed on. So it's it's kind of pretty gross, but an example of uh, nature managing its resources more responsibly and maturely than human beings are capable of. Yeah, well, we can't manage toads. People get overexcited, don't they? Just want to smash them when I see them. (laughs) 
does this little toad face looking up at you yeah. with its cute golden eyes. Oh, gosh, yeah, just that compulsion to hit it with a brick. <laughs> <laughs> You're the absolute worst. Oh, goodness. Right, so, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. Have you got any other added extras? Um, no, I don't think I do. Apart from, I've got some cool bird news. No, no, no. No? No. You don't want to know about those those hawks that deliberately spread fire in Australia? Oh yeah, okay, yeah. We'll make a we'll make an exception. Go on. Mate. Well, they're just hawks that are deliberately spreading fire in Australia. It's awesome. So they 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 scare all the little animals out and then they just eat them. It's brutal. Yeah. Yeah, mental. What are they up to? Oh yeah, and orcas I mean, can now To be fair, some of those animals could be skinks. So Still herpetology. Yeah, and orcas got taught how to speak English, didn't they? But they just yeah. they just kept on saying, "Give me fish." <laughs> <laughs> you guys suck. Give you guys suck. Fish. Why am I here? Give me fish. One day, Please, can I leave? <laughs> one day, one day, matey boy off that documentary is going to come and bite your leg off. <laughs> oh, the poor orcas. What was it called? The one, the crazy one. Did we have a T? It was called like I can't remember. Uh... Talbot. No, it wasn't called Talbot. It was a bloody orca. You wouldn't call an orca Talbot. What was it called? Uh, ta- Talion. Uh, Til- Tilicum. Tilicum. T- Tilicum. Yeah. Yeah, I was close with Talbot. Yeah, you weren't, but okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, ten of his offspring are still kicking around, so... Brutal. Yeah, anyway, what a horrible note to end on. Maybe I'll cut that out. So, um... No way. No way. Leave it in. Animals are beginning to speak, and they're not happy. No, yeah, I'm only joking. They didn't say that. I can't remember what they said. They just said... He said, um... Stop poking me with that stick. <laughs> <laughs> what did they say? An orca called Wilkie, who learned to mimic human So long speech, and thanks for all the fish. Could teach us a lot about... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Thing is, whenever you teach an animal to speak, oh, whenever you teach an animal to speak, no, wait, there speak, is something. There's multimedia stuff. There's a fantastic picture doing the rounds of a king cobra going toe to toe with a reticulated python. Oh yeah, that's a badass picture. Yeah, and they're both dead. Mm, there's a draw. <laughs> yeah, I I'm always worried about these photos because I feel like did someone just throw nah. a tick and a king into a pit and see oh, what happened? Yeah, maybe. Well, but at the same time, this... it would have been tough to throw that retic and that king because they are huge. I mean, it wouldn't have been that tough to orchestrate that photo. It's like easily doable. I mean, you know, but <laughs> I've I don't... done it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up! No, I uh... <laughs> no, I've I've not done that. But I think uh, I think it's real. And um, just the fact that they both died is really good because I think on the scoreboard as it stands, reticulated pythons are down about twenty million to five. Yeah. So I yeah, think it's... they are. They needed a. They needed at least a draw. Yeah, they did. They needed a draw. Bump those numbers up. Give the other retics a bit of com- sort of confidence that they can actually win against the king cobra. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. For those that don't know, king cobras eat snakes, and one of the snakes they eat is the reticulated python in one of nature's greatest battles. Um, it's mm. it's basically the land based equivalent of a sperm whale versus a giant squid, but with way less arms and tentacles and fins. And more venom. And more venom, and more constriction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. So yeah, I think that concludes episode twenty. Can't believe we're at episode twenty, mates. Getting there. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Learning a lot. 
having a fine time <laughs> so uh yeah thanks for listening uh check out our facebook.com slash herp highlights we're also on twitter at herp highlights and if you want to get in touch with us particularly if you want to tell us things we got wrong um you can do it via either of those mediums or email us at herp highlights at gmail.com worth mentioning full show notes are on the podbean website they do not display correctly in itunes or anything other anything else really so if you want in proper references to follow up on podbean website's the way to go yeah cool thanks for listening thanks for listening Hello Reptile fans, sorry if you listened all the way to the end expecting something that might by some considered to be funny, but instead you've got me asking you to do us a favour. We've been nominated for the Reptile Report's Reader's Choice Radio Show of the Year, and it'd be really cool to get a vote. So if you would be so kind, please go into the description of the podcast episode, click on the link, head to the Reptile Report's website and give us a vote. Thank you very, very much, and good night! <laughs>